Sir Edward Don, whom we met in our first lecture as a collector of almanacs, made a habit of copying moral tags into his household account book. In March 1533, he noted his resolution, no longer to live than to serve my natural sovereign lord in defending him and his realm in battle as a man. The sentiments were typical of his class and generation. Lord Berners expected that reading Froissart's chronicles in his English translation exciteth, moveth, and stirreth the strong, hardy warriors for the great lord that they have after they've been dead, promptly to go in hand with great and hardy perils in defense of their country. Charles Blount, Lord Mountjoy, composed this improving epitaph for a monument to my children to continue and keep themselves worthy of so much honor as to be called hereafter to die for their master and country. But were these just loyal platitudes? And were they in any case passing away with the generations forged in the Hundred Years' War and dangerously reheated in the Wars of the Roses? Some contemporaries certainly thought so. In the 1470s, William Worcester was already complaining that rather than cultivating the disciplines, doctrine, and usage of school of arms, young gentlemen were setting themselves to learn the practice of law or custom of land or of civil matter, and so wasting greatly their time in holding courts and similar business. By the 1540s, it was apparently accountancy rather than law that had become the route to a comfortable life. Any resemblance to a university graduate destination survey is purely coincidental, but Ellis Griffith of the Calais Garrison was equally scathing. The latest captains, he thought, were a lot of feckless boys who were sent to school to learn to count money and become auditors rather than soldiers. Now, these complaints don't fit well with the fact that the leaders of gentle society, the parliamentary peerage, kept up a strong record of military service. In 1492, three quarters either joined Henry VII's French campaign or sent their eldest sons, and many of the rest were northerners who served against the Scots. In 1513, again, the numbers not serving either in France, at sea, or at Flodden were tiny. In 1544, half the adult peers were in France with the king, and nearly a quarter fighting the Scots. And these figures look even more impressive when we realize that William Worcester's golden age was not quite as golden as he thought. Half the peers in the Hundred Years' War were occasional soldiers at best, and only one in six a relentless campaigner. Now, if we widen our inquiry to look at members of the House of Commons, we start to understand Worcester's concerns. Apparently, fewer than a quarter of all MPs between 1509 and 1558 campaigned on land or sea. And the proportion involved in war at all, for example, by mustering or victualling troops, barely reached a quarter. Now, these are minimum figures, but they still give pause for thought. They come better into focus when we separate out the burgesses representing towns from the knights of the shire, generally senior landed gentry, well over half of whom campaigned. This did mark a decline, for in some 14th century parliaments, as many as 69% of the knights of the shire were campaigners. But it also perpetuated a distinction, for most burgesses had no military experience even then. Demilitarization was a long process and one shaped by strategic circumstance. 15th century knights of the Shire, Andy King and Simon Paling have shown, were much less likely to have extensive military experience than their predecessors, because the Lancastrian war of steady conquest and standing garrisons was harder to combine with domestic, political, and social life than Edward III's chevauchees had been. The result was an increasing differentiation between a social elite who could fight but rarely did and an expert set of wholehearted captains. To be fair to William Worcester, it was precisely these men, Thomas Montague, Earl of Salisbury and the rest, that he had in mind when he lamented his lost heroes. Perhaps he wouldn't have been disappointed to meet William Lord Grader Wilton and Henry's other generals. Further strategic change, moreover, might bring remilitarization of the sort Roger Manning has identified among the English peerage and gentry amid the confessional wars and standing armies of the 17th century. Apparent demilitarization also sprang from a change in the composition of the landed elite. Ideas of gentility were changing, 
as heraldry, for example, became a mark of gentle descent rather than of military distinction. And new groups were entering the peerage and the gentry. Some of the peers who didn't serve in 1544 were lawyers or administrators. And many of our non-combatant MPs were similar. Ellis Griffith, in his idiosyncratic way, noticed the change. Most of the gentry round London by the 1540s, he thought, were the children of clothiers, others of farmers, some even of lawyers and butchers and carters, if they had money enough to buy the lands of the monasteries or take them on lease. With demilitarization went specialization. Just as being a lawyer or an auditor was a professional skill that marked one out amongst the gentry, so was being a captain, a trend marked by the sudden spread of the title captain in the 1550s and 1560s. In 1557, the accounts of the army in France used it wholesale, and soon it was everywhere. In the early 1560s, Ludlow mentioned Captain Hacklett passing through, and the Londoners sent their men off with Captain Vaughan and Captain Layton. The typical captain was a younger son, or bastard of landowning stock, like many who'd made careers in arms in the past. Before 1558, the Calais and Boulogne garrisons provided opportunities for men like the three bastard sons of Sir Edward Poynings, of whom Thomas became deputy of Boulogne, Edward, captain of the guard at Boulogne, and Adrian, captain of the citadel at Boulogne, and eventually captain of Portsmouth. In the wars either side of 1558, there were careers for the younger brothers of the earls of Rutland and Worcester, and of Lords Darcy and Zouche. And thereafter, Ireland was the place. Of the leading garrison captains of the 1560s and 70s, Sir Ralph Bagnall, Sir Henry Radcliffe, and Sir Warham St. Ledger were second sons, Sir Richard Bingham, Sir George Boucher, and Sir William Drury, third sons. But leading troops into battle was only one part of the military role of the nobility and gentry. The deployment of their social authority was also fundamental in assembling armies. In the century after 1475, five different ways of raising troops, all inherited from the past, interacted in what Jeremy Goring has called a shift from a quasi-feudal to a national system of recruitment. The first and oldest mechanism remained in the background much of the time, but came into its own from the 1540s. This was the levy of all able men between 16 and 60 for national defence under commissions of array. Secondly, for overseas expeditions in the Hundred Years' War, kings raised armies under contracts with the captains of individual companies. Thirdly, to assist in assembling such contingents, but also for wider political and administrative purposes, lords recruited retinues of men sworn to their service. Fourthly, around this core of retainers, lords could call on a wider following of servants, tenants, and friends who accepted their protection and would serve them as part of what the Victorians dubbed bastard feudalism. Kings needed these third and fourth mechanisms to work if they were to recruit armies effectively, but they were also worried at the potential they gave for violent disorder and judicial corruption in private disputes. Their response was to legislate against retaining, but then license those they trusted to retain. Henry VII did this so systematically that he produced what we might think of as a fifth mechanism, a national retinue scheme, under which trusted peers, councillors, household men, and towns recruited large retinues sworn to the king's service under license, returning their names to the king's secretary. The result was impressive. One Burgundian observer recorded that Henry held 40,000 fine and strong men ready in their homes and that the French much feared what he might do with them. Traces of the scheme remain in the archives of the king's mother, who sent messengers round Lincolnshire in 1508 to call in her retained servants to do the king's grace service. Of Sir Henry Willoughby, who preserved his license to retain, with its characteristic advertisement of the king's great study, labour and policy in securing peace, and Sir Thomas Lovell, whose list survives of 1,365 retainers from 13 counties. Henry's scheme died with him, but its aspirations persisted. The general prescription of spring 1522, a remarkable attempt to record the names, wealth and military equipment of every adult male in England, together, crucially, with the relationships of tenure and service that would channel his recruitment for war, may have make, marked a final effort to generalize it. 
In the absence of such a scheme, kings were dependent on some combination of indentures, private retinues, and wider affinities to harness the recruiting powers of the nobility and gentry. Indentures were used in 1492 and 1512, but thereafter replaced by letters requiring lords to raise a number of men from among their tenants, servants, and those under their rule and offices. We'll explore each of these categories of recruits in turn, but we should note that these letters never mentioned retainers. This was odd, because as J.P. Cooper pointed out many years ago, retaining was alive and well into the 1580s and 1590s. Henry VII's attitude towards it had been calculatedly divisive. Those he trusted were encouraged to retain on a large scale. Those he did not trust were spectacularly punished. In George Lord Bergeveni's case, with a massive fine and a promise not to go to the counties where his estates lay without the king's permission. No wonder he looked depressed. <laughs> Succeeding regimes tried unsuccessfully to alternate between permissive policies in wartime and restrictive policies in peacetime. The War of 1512-14 was bookended by proclamations revoking all licenses to retain and followed by high-profile prosecutions of peers and their retainers. Then in 1522, retainers were reported in large numbers to the commissioners for the general proscription. Some came in handfuls, but Thomas Marquis of Dorset, one of those prosecuted in 1516, had 77 retainers in Worcestershire alone. Some of the retainers of 1522 were explicitly retained by fees, livery coats, or placards, but others must have done service in a previous campaign and continued to regard themselves as retained. When Sir William Griffith, Chamberlain of North Wales, was accused in 1519 of maintaining an illegal retinue more than 100 strong, he insisted that he'd retained men with his badge only in wartime. As witnesses pointed out, this did not stop men continuing to wear his badge if they thought that such as did wear his cognizance he would favour, and such as did not he would be extreme unto them. From the 1540s, regular warfare and popular disorder revived the issue of licenses to retain to peers, councillors, and courtiers. Under Edward, trusted councillors were even given standing companies of men-at-arms paid by the king, though spending cuts soon put a stop to that. At least a dozen of Sir William Griffith's retainers were also his estate tenants. This shouldn't surprise us, for musterlists show us that the tenantry was central to the process of recruitment. In 1492, for example, Lord Latimer's retinue included Miles Bain, Archer, and Christopher Johnson and Thomas Pearson, billmen, all his tenants at Snape and Well in Yorkshire. In 1508, Lovell's retainers included the tenants of his brother-in-law, Lord Roos, whose estates were in his keeping. In 1542, the Countess of Rutland sent two or three men from each of the family's manors in Leicestershire and Lincolnshire to join her husband on the Scottish border. Even when individuals can't be matched in this way, the role of the tenantry can be confirmed by the matches between the surnames of those serving in retinues and the tenants recorded in the general proscription or in estate records. And at a broader level still, the destinations to which returning soldiers were paid conduct money matched time and again the distribution of their captain's estates. This was true in 1513 for peers such as the Duke of Buckingham, the Earl of Essex and Lord Burgoveni, in 1523 for Lords Conyers, Clifford and others. It was still true in 1557, where many of the Earl of Pembroke's men went to Wilton, the Earl of Rutland's to Helmsley, the Earl of Bedford's to Tavistock and Sir John Perrott's to Haverford West. Such recruiting was facilitated by lordly record keeping. Walter Strickland's book, recording 279 tenants from seven different estates in Westmoreland, able to serve as bowmen or billmen, on horse or on foot, still survives. Yet tenant recruitment was on the slide. The 1540s saw a number of lawsuits between lords and tenants who simply refused to serve, and a statute of 1550 permitting landlords to evict the recalcitrant couldn't stem the tide. Had the tenants changed or had the wars changed? Probably both. A system designed for quick campaigns in civil wars or brief expeditions to France was ill-suited to the relentless garrison warfare of Boulogne, Haddington or La Havre, while the spread of leasing and rise in rents in an expanding agricultural market produced a new breed of assertive large-scale farmers. Not even Henry VIII could beat both the military revolution and the rise of agrarian capitalism. 
In Mary's reign, one estate surveyor, William Humberston, already looked back to the good old days when there was such a knot of collateral amity between the lords and the tenants that if the lord were at any time commanded to serve the king's majesty, the tenants would leave wife, children and substance and follow their lord and adventure their lives with him most willingly. Indeed, he continued, beginning to strain credulity, they had no care of their lives, remembering that if their chance were to be left in the field, their widow should have their lands to provide for their children. As tenants began to doubt such certainties, lords dealt with them in three different ways, confrontational, cajoling, or contractual. In the short term, confrontation might appear to work. On the 31st of August, 1557, William Anne of Aylesbury, tenant to Sir Thomas Packington, was committed to the Fleet Prison by the Privy Council for his stubborn behaviour towards the said Sir Thomas and refusal to come to his musters. Subsequently, Anne was ordered to submit himself with promise from henceforth to behave himself as a tenant ought to do and to exhort as much as lie in him the rest of the tenants to do the like. The Earl of Bath's estate officers preferred the carrot to the stick. In that same trying year of war and disease, Humphrey Collis, trying to muster the Earl's tenants, thought the Earl should write to thank those who had extended their benevolence unto him so that he might find them more willing upon semblable occasion. Sir Anthony Brown's servants similarly were told gently to entreat his tenants to be ready when he should send for them, assuring them that, thus doing, they do my master great pleasure. In the longer term, the contractual approach won out. Agreements binding tenants to serve when called upon or forfeit their holding can be found as early as 1486. From the 1510s, leases began to carry the more elaborate formula that the tenant would serve in person, find a sufficient substitute, or pay to find one. At first, this happened where there was special need, on the Isle of Wight, for example, or for lords who held captaincies at Calais. But from the 1530s to the 1550s, many greater and lesser landowning families introduced such clauses. Some of their tenants even passed on the resulting costs to their subtenants, stipulating that a few shillings were payable in addition to the rent at every time when the lessee shall furnish any men to the wars for his landlord. Military service was becoming commodified, and the prosperous tenant could pay for someone else to risk his life. Except, ironically, in the northernmost counties, where tenant right tenures, strong on military obligations but favourable in other ways, were consolidated just as Anglo-Scottish relations took a turn towards friendship and union. The centrality of the tenantry gave estate officers a prime role, not only in recruitment, but also in military service. In the 1520s and 30s, the Percys, stewards, bailiffs and park keepers took charge of leading the Earl's tenants to war. In 1492, one of Sir Henry Willoughby's demi-lances was Arnold G, his bailiff of Sutton-on-Trent. One of Lord Latimer's was Thomas Morley, his bailiff of Snape. And Sir Ralph Longford and the Earls of Oxford and Shrewsbury also numbered estate officers in their retinues. The commissioners of 1522 noted the bailiffs and park keepers of various landlords, generally men with military equipment for themselves and sometimes even for others. Greater lords with larger retinues needed the service of more senior officers. In 1533, the Earl of Derby was insistent that his steward, Sir Robert Bellingham, should lead men under him rather than serve at the command of Lord Dacre. Captain's own tenants were joined by the tenants of the king or of other lords, religious houses in particular, whom the recruiter served as his state steward. Heads of religious houses, who came under pressure from one neighbouring gentleman to let him recruit their tenants, could respond that until the steward had decided which men to levy, the other applicant could have none. The large expansions in the Crown's land holdings under Henry VII, and again at the dissolution of the monasteries, made this source of manpower particularly important. Repeated statutes, proclamations, and letters to stewards asserted the king's unique right to call on the service of his tenants. In Lovell's licensed retinue, about one-third of the men were recruited through Crown stewardships, and another fifth through his offices on monastic and episcopal estates. In 1513, Sir Henry Marney raised nine times as many men through his offices in the Duchies of Cornwall and Lancaster as from his own Essex lands. This trend also amplified the military role of the royal household, 
though not in the same way as in continental monarchies where guards units proliferated. Henry never had more than a few hundred yeomen of the guard and around 50 king's spears or gentlemen pensioners, but the stewardships held by courtiers gave them the power to recruit. Even lords with large land holdings drew on stewardships. The Marquis of Dorset retained at least 35 men at Droitwich, where he was steward for the Queen. The stewardships of Furness and Wally were important to the Earl of Derby's recruitment, and the Duke of Norfolk drew on Bury St Edmund's Abbey and the University of Cambridge. Household servants were less numerous than tenants in most retinues, but of central importance. The 1492 musters hint at this, recording recruits such as John of the Pantry or George of the Chamber. County musters show that peers could arm very large numbers of servants. In Sussex in 1539, Lord Le War produced 57 fully equipped for war, the Earl of Arundel 123, and William Fitzwilliam, Earl of Southampton, 183. Servants were expected to be supremely loyal to their masters, hence the emphasis on arming them to confront rebels. Long service must have played a part in that. Five or six of the Earl of Oxford's spears or demi-lances from 1492, nine archers, seven billmen, a custrel and a page, were still his household servants 16 years later. When Lovell died in 1524, he rewarded his old servants, William Kirkby and Robinette Water, who had been his archers in France 32 years before. Loyalty was reciprocated. John Lord Latimer set out in his will that any of his servants notably hurt or maimed when following him to war should be compensated with a year's wages, and Sir Giles Strangeways that each servant accompanying him should have his horse and harness. Servants may also have been well prepared to fight if other households were like that of Sir David Owen, whose servants ripped up quiet Midhurst like the Three Musketeers. Yet as retinues gave way to county contingents, household service became a draft-dodging measure. In 1556, one Hampshire man was casting around for a master, worried that if any going forth be, he is a man likely to be one, unless he be retained into some service. As in the Hundred Years' War, captains looked to bolster their retinues by subcontracting. In 1492, the Marquis of Dorset asked the help of Sir John Trevelyan to purvey me of three or four good archers or more. In 1523, Sir Edward Guilford, expected as warden of the Cinque Ports to raise 500 of the best and of the tallest persons apparelled in everything for the war, wrote anxiously to his local subordinates to take pain with diligence as my very trust is in you. They were to speak with Thomas Aldy and Guilford's other friends and ask them to appoint me the tallest men that be in that parts, so that ye may have their names, that I may be in a surety of them. They were to ask Aldi himself that he be in my company in this journey, as my trust is that he will be as soon with me as with any other man. Such networks bridged the gap between the huge indentured retinues geared to military recruitment of a John of Gaunt or a William Lord Hastings, and the military clientels of Leicester in the 1580s and Essex in the 1590s. Finally, captains amplified their retinues by asking friendly towns to contribute men. The Dukes of Norfolk drew men from Norwich, the Earls of Huntingdon from Leicester, but such relationships were under constant negotiation. The bailiffs of Shrewsbury told the Earl of Shrewsbury in 1492 that while the townsfolk were willing to serve him in domestic campaigns, as they had served his ancestors, they could in no wise be persuaded to join him overseas. Lords also had to be able to equip the men they raised. They provided their coats and claimed the money back later from the Crown. Sir Richard Gresham, the London merchant who had just bought the Fountains Abbey estate, received itemised accounts showing how £6.10 shillings had been spent in autumn 1542 on 40 white coats with red crosses for his men, made up by a tailor and his servants who came to his manor house at Brimham. Some recruits had arms and armour. Some lords raised money from the wider tenantry to buy it, but most often lords armed men from their own stocks. These were both larger and more modern than the town and village armouries we examined last week. Sir Raynald Bray had six handguns as early as 1503, for example, and Thomas Cromwell, 272 in 1540. Knights and esquires often produced equipment for half a dozen men or more at musters, 
And some of the Cornish gentry in 1569 could equip companies in the latest style. Sir John Arundel of Lanhearn had 20 corslets, 40 all-main rivets, 10 handguns, 10 bows, 20 pikes, 40 bills, and equipment for two lightly and two heavily armed horsemen. Even the lawyers and auditors that so worried William Worcester and Ellis Griffith packed a punch. John Smith, sergeant at law, left his son in the armory or gallery at Smith's Hall in Blackmore, Essex, in 1543, a complete harness for his upper body and eight sets of all-main rivets. Thomas Burgoyne, auditor of the Duchy of Lancaster, left his sons in 1546 a similar selection of all-main rivets. Was it his auditor's instincts that made him specify each set was able and sufficient and complete, and other armour and weapons? Everywhere, peers and gentlemen either employed armourers full-time to keep their equipment in good repair, or called them in for days or weeks at a time to scour and oil and mend it. Horses were also important. So important that successive Acts of Parliament ordered wealthy men to keep brood mares and great horses, and permitted the confiscation of undersized stallions roaming common pastures and begetting offspring too puny for the defence of the realm. In 1547 and 1565, instructions went out to local authorities to check that gentlemen were keeping great horses, and the 1569 muster commissioners carefully noted mares in parks. Thomas Blunderville, author on horsemanship, urged constant vigilance, for the lack of great horses and geldings meet for service would, if any invasion should chance, quickly appear, I fear me, to the great peril and danger of this Her Highness realm. The leading generals, at least, seem to have done their bit. Lord Greater Wilton lost 72 great horses and 100 geldings in an attempt to relieve Haddington. To resist Wyatt's rebellion, the Earl of Arundel produced 60 great horses out of his own stable. The most expensive horse we've so far found kicking someone in a coroner's inquest, worth 20 pounds when most horses were worth a pound or two, belonged to the Earl of Pembroke. Other studs were notable for sheer quality, Blunderville singled out Sir Nicholas Arnold, captain at Boulogne and campaigner in Ireland, for his industry and diligence in breeding fine Neapolitan horses in Gloucestershire. Horses were not the only expense of campaigning. Captains had to equip themselves and their retinues in suitable style and stockpile cash for unanticipated expenses in the field, not least because the exercise of lordly command demanded conspicuous consumption. Sir Rhysat Thomas, reported he took £3,000 in gold and silver on the 1513 campaign, and Sir Edward Guilford gave one servant £90 in a casket to cover necessaries concerning the said Sir Edward during the King's Wars. All manner of expedients were necessary to raise cash. The Duke of Norfolk in 1475 and Thomas Lord Scroop of Masham in 1492 mortgaged lands, and Sir John Arundel of Lanhearn in 1513 sold plate. Several captains sold land, sometimes at knockdown prices, and the Marquess of Dorset in 1512 made perpetual leases at fixed rents, presumably in exchange for large fines. Fortunate were courtiers who could ask the king for cash advances, or those with rich kinsmen, like Arthur Plantagenet Viscount Lyle, who borrowed more than £200 from the Earl of Arundel. More common were complaints of the great costs of serving the king in war convenient in fending off other creditors, but sometimes heartfelt and convincing. Costs worsened in the event of mishap. When Sir John Carew died on his burning ship in 1512, he lost much of the plate and cash bequeathed to his wife by her first husband, as well as the clothing and armour he had bought with her money. Capture was almost worse, for its repercussions could last for generations. Greater Wilton had to borrow £8,000 from the Crown and sell lands to pay the ransom charged him after the fall of Guine in 1558, with the risk his family might be utterly undone forever. Matters were compounded by his nobly generous help in paying the equally exorbitant ransom of one of his subordinates. His case was exceptional, but capture was an occupational hazard for those who served at Calais befell some on shorter campaigns, and called for ransoms running to hundreds of pounds or more. The wise made what provision they could, for example, in marriage settlements permitting the diversion of revenues in the event of capture. Capture was not the only risk. 
in war, as the Marquis of Dorset reminded the Willoughby family in pressing them to settle his sister's jointure, there is, as you know, much danger and casualty. Wounds were readily incurred on the way to battle. A horse kick broke Marnie's leg in 1513, and in 1558 the Earl of Rutland's leg was hurt in the ship as he tried to rescue Calais. Wounds were worse in combat or under bombardment, while disease redoubled the danger. At Le Havre, half a dozen English captains were wounded, half a dozen killed outright, three drowned in a Channel shipwreck, and a dozen died of plague. Even those who survived might lose those dear to them. Sir Thomas Cheney and Sir Giles Strangeways lost sons who accompanied them to Montreuil and Boulogne. Yet war was compelling. Some found it exhilarating, reporting breathlessly how they had chased the enemy from the field, or spoke of it with studied casualness as sport. The discomforts of war were a badge of honour. I mean nothing less than the sparing of my poor body in anything wherein I may do his majesty service, avowed John Dudley, Lord Lyle. And Lord Leonard Grey, brother to the Marquis of Dorset, tore a strip off William Body, a self-important royal commissioner, when he complained about his lodgings on campaign. I said, I was sure he should never be so good as the Duke of Norfolk and Suffolk and my lord, my brother, whom I had seen lodged worse. Yet war needed to be done nobly. In Ireland, the gentry of the English Pale were horrified when Grey confiscated the horses, armour and weapons of Lords Delvin and Gormanston and made them walk home when they failed to follow him in crossing a ford in the face of the enemy. Others admittedly found war wearisome. By 1557, the Earl of Bath complained he had been sent to keep order in Devon because of the unquiet state of the county three years running. It had cost him more than £1,300. He was sure he couldn't go again because it was too painful to ride, and he had never been given £2 a day to serve as lieutenant there as the Earl of Bedford had. War was a serious business, but that didn't preclude a sharp, dark sense of humour. On embassy in Spain in 1518, Lord Berners topped the joke cracked by the French ambassador as the court watched the Spanish martial art of cane play with its stylized recreation of the light cavalry warfare of the Moorish frontier. As the men wheeled their horses, the Frenchman said it seemed a good way to teach them to flee their enemies. Berners retorted that the French had already learnt that at the Battle of the Spurs. In a similar vein, Sir Thomas Wharton joked to the Duke of Suffolk after a successful raid on the Scottish borders, that because the Laird of Buccleuch reported he had gotten much gold in rewards of the Cardinal, he might the better forego part of his sheep. The qualities expected of commanders were demanding. In 1557, the Earl of Pembroke was appointed Captain General for his wisdom, dexterity, activity, valiantness, and experience in the war. Experience, diligence, and painfulness, painstakingness, were often commended, as was activeness, the quality displayed by Lord Leonard Grey, a stirrer abroad and no sleeper in the morning. Hardiness, boldness, was good, though best when tempered with discretion or sad advice. There were differences, though, between paternalist and coercive styles of command. Ellis Griffith drew a contrast, no doubt overblown, between Lord Clinton, greatly beloved among all ranks, who played his part like a brave and noble captain by risking his life among his soldiers, courteously thanking and rewarding generously those soldiers who did any brave deeds, while courteously rebuking those who were to blame. And the Earl of Surrey and his captains, who rather than comfort the soldiers with kindly, tender, godly words, used to call on the soldiers with vain, contemptuous words, beating and shoving the common soldiers forward. As captain of the castle at Broughty Crag in Scotland, Sir Andrew Dudley, brave but haughty, impressed but alienated his men, whereas his successor, Sir John Luttrell, pleaded their cause affectionately with his superiors and shared in their privations, even digging fortifications alongside them, as inspirational commanders made a point of doing. Captains reflected on command through military literature. 15th century English captains read translations of Vigetius. The 5th Earl of Northumberland's papers included a draft of order and a peril of a prince when he goeth to war. And in the 1540s, Edward Seymour and John Dudley apparently used military treatises and booklets of tactical diagrams. 
Some captains even wrote handbooks. Thomas Audley and Henry Barrett were long-serving soldiers of comparatively low birth, but Sir Ralph Bulmer seems to have been the author of a work on the manner and fashion of levying of arms in this our nation of England, presented to his fellow Yorkshire knight, Sir Oswald Wilstrop. War could advance a gentleman's social standing, for military campaigns were major opportunities to acquire knighthood. War could also make or break a reputation. Wounds might announce honour. It was said of Sir William Godolphin that the wounds he got at Boulogne were no less to the beautifying of his fame than the disfiguring of his face. Failures might equip enemies to traduce. Sir John Bridges was incensed when his neighbour John Warnford, in many honourable and worshipful assemblies, companies and conferences, defamed him as a crook-nosed knave and also a very coward and that he was so proved at Boulogne. Warnford was condemned in Star Chamber to admit on his knees in open court that he had untruly slandered Bridges and ask his forgiveness. The charge may have had so much bite because Bridges had been with the Earl of Surrey on the fateful day their troops fled from the French at Saint-Étienne. Thomas Thames was less secure in his gentility than Bridges, but charged with worse failings. No wonder he denied a neighbour's accusation that when the French attacked the Isle of Wight, I stood in the king's garrison like a man, when thou, as a traitor and coward, fleddest out of the said isle with thy wife, and conveyest then all thy plate and thy money with thee as the king's untrue subject. Such reputation might become the subject of very public debate. Lord Wentworth, in command at Calais when it fell, was ventriloquised in a printed ballad of 1559, bewailing his fate in the most banal of verse. Martial reputation inhered in families as well as individuals. Heraldry might blazon real deeds as well as haunt prophetic imaginations. Sir Edward Guilford, Marshal of Calais, punned on his firebrand badge in answer to a French challenge and burnt the nearby countryside. Sir Edward Stanley was made Lord Monteagle for his deeds at Flodden, holding a hill or mount against the Scots under his family's eagle crest. When heralds toured the country, recording coats of arms, they noted the deeds, the deaths, and the military offices of members of gentle families from the Hundred Years' War to the recent past. Robert Clear of Ormsby, slain at Musselburgh, Percy's, Ewers, and Bowes, who served at Berwick and Norham, Bouchers and Wingfields, who served at Calais. John Leland heard similar stories of Oliver Sinjan that died at Fontarabia in Spain when the late Marquis of Dorset was there, of the two Fitzwilliam brothers slain at the field of Flodden of the Scots. Survivors took such stories to heart. Sir William Fitzwilliam pledged to do the Scots some displeasure in revenge for his brothers. Tombs formed a link between individual identity and the lasting local power of families. It was normal to commemorate manorial lords with effigies or brasses depicting them in armour, whether or not they had notable military careers, but a special emphasis on military achievement could be added. Repeated service to a great age was a theme in the epitaphs for Sir Marmaduke Constable, who made it from France in 1475 to Flodden in 1513, and for Sir George Beeston, who lasted from Boulogne to the Armada. The second Duke of Norfolk's long epitaph recited his services from Barnet to Flodden. Sir John Clarke's epitaph at Tame recalled his capture of the Duke of Longueville at the Battle of the Spurs. Sir Ralph Sadler's tomb carried the Scottish banner he captured at Pinkie. Funerals, too, might go out of their way to emphasise prowess. The second Duke of Norfolk's mourners were treated to an hour-long sermon on the text, Behold, the lion of the Ju sorry, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah triumphs in between his various funeral masses. By the time Grader Wilton died in 1562, the service was very different, morning prayer and communion with psalms of praise and thanksgiving for the departure of the dead in the faith of Christ. But the sermon much commended his worthy service as well in France as in Scotland. Fame came in many forms. One was membership of the historic companionship of English chivalry, the Order of the Garter. Another was the naming of fortifications built or commanded by the captain, a recognizably modern donor recognition strategy. 
Calais had Lovell's Bulwark. Guine had Wheat Hill's Bulwark. The Calais Marsh had a set of bulwarks named for their captains. And Ambleteurs outside Boulogne had bastions called Barclays Mount, Boucher's Mount, and Sturton's Mount. Most redolent of the need to urge men to build defences under fire were the bulwarks of Haddington, named for their captains, Bowes, Taylor, and Wilford. While at the next incursion into Scotland, the forts built to besiege Leith were named Mount Pelham and Somerset's Mount. Objects large and small might also testify to martial experience. Thomas Hardris added the iron-bound gates of Boulogne to his house in Kent. Giles Allington, a bell from Boulogne to Horseheath in Cambridgeshire. Books were marked with inscriptions that showed where they had been plundered. A shepherd's calendar from Morlaix, Cicero's letters from Boulogne, a history of Scotland, a canon law collection, and a Latin Bible from Edinburgh. Weapons were especially eloquent. Edward Lord Windsor, one of the first Englishmen over the walls of Saint-Quentin in 1557, kept in his armory a case of dags with black stocks, which came from Saint-Quentin. More deliberate commemorations were also popular. Guests of John Dudley at his London house would have seen maps of his campaigns in Scotland and Norfolk. Guests of the Earl of Pembroke, his trencher of estate, curiously wrought with the siege of Saint-Quentin. Sir John Fulford had a large painting of the Battle of Graveline. And most spectacularly, William Fitzwilliam and his half-brother Sir Anthony Brown commissioned ten panel paintings and a five-part mural for their house at Cowdery in Sussex, depicting the great events of their careers, from the Guienne expedition of 1512 to the defence of Portsmouth in 1545. More bizarrely, Sir Richard Bulkley apparently had the ash trees at Barren Hill on Anglesey planted in the formation taken up by the English army at Pinkie. <laughs> An armoured portrait did not necessarily denote a devoted warrior. For Sir Richard Bingham, who fought in Scotland, France, the Netherlands and the Mediterranean and ended as president of Connaught, it probably did. Whereas for John Force, First Lord Mordaunt, who didn't even serve in 1544, it surely did not. But some portraits represented the sitter at moments of particular glory or self-sacrifice. Like the striking depictions of Edwardian captains by Hans Ewarth, featuring Pinky, Haddington, and a battle at sea. Sir William Drury accompanied his portrait by a plan of Edinburgh Castle, which he'd won by bombardment in 1573, surrounded by the heraldry of 16 brothers-in-arms. One group of captains in particular reveled in praise for their martial achievements, the Welsh gentry. Sir Isap Thomas of Dinevor and Carew, Sir Is Monsell of Oxwich, the Salisburys of Llewenny, the Griffiths of Penryn, and many more were lauded for their deeds at Terouanne, Tournay, Boulogne, and Saint-Quentin, at Bosworth, Blackheath, and Mousehold, at Edinburgh, and in Ireland, in the praise poems and elegies of Tudor Aled, Louis Mon, Louis Morganog, Sean Tudor, and other touring bards. Assertions of their particular importance in each victory flowed with cheerful abandon, and comparisons with Arthur and Lancelot, Charlemagne and Roland came readily to hand. Military experience also had more practical benefits. It justified noblemen's counsel to the king as experts on the problems of Ireland or the North. Archbishop Lee of York argued that the social benefit of Hexham Priory in time of war might be testified by many of the noblemen of this realm that hath done the king's highness service in Scotland. War also built regional and local power, as those who led armies consolidated their bonds with those who served under them. Knights and gentlemen making wills sometimes mentioned that they were going to war under the most noble captain, the Earl of Shrewsbury, or were to wait upon the right noble prince, Charles Duke of Suffolk, into the parts of France, there to war upon the Frenchmen. Once on campaign, commanders recommended those serving them for reward and knighted those who had done well. The second, third, and fourth Dukes of Norfolk managed to confer 136 knighthoods between them, and the speedy Edward Seymour, 123 in three and a half years. Such practices reinforced the ties of kinship, friendship, and clientage that animated armies on campaign, whether led by great lords like Norfolk or Suffolk, or veteran captains like Sir Edward Poynings. The experience of fighting together then fed back into the relationships that made local politics and local government work, all the more so when local noblemen coordinated local defence, 
the Fitzgerald Earls of Kildare, for example, or the Percy Earls of Northumberland. Only when military responsibilities were completely out of alignment with local politics did the pain outweigh the gain. The Earl of Bath somehow ended up as captain of Beaumaris Castle. Its towers were collapsing. His deputy, Sir Richard Bulkley, resigned on finding out that the locals would not come to defend it, and the messenger the Earl sent to London found his tragical suit for help batted backwards and forwards between the majority of the Privy Council, who insisted that no one ever attacked Anglesey anyway, and, <laughs> and Lord Paget, who Lord Paget, who knew of divers' attempts made to that isle, but was unavailable for comment as he and his wife were leaving to take the waters at Bath. <laughs> as the leaders of landed society and the gentry below them campaigned less often, war came to shape local politics in different ways. The huge armies required by Henry in 1544-5 tested the retinue system to breaking point, and commissions of array came into more general use to levy contingents of men county by county, a procedure repeated for the wars of Edward, Mary and Elizabeth in Scotland and France. To face the threat of invasion in 1545, counties were grouped under the Dukes of Norfolk and Suffolk and Lord Russell, who were charged with raising men and overseeing coastal defences, just as various peers had been in 1539. From these experiments was born the Lord Lieutenancy. From 1550, every county was put under one or more peer, privy councillor or trusted knight, charged not only with mustering and levying men, but also with a more general, special care of good order to be had in the country. Mary tried to revoke the scheme, but was forced by war and rebellion to revive it. Elizabeth maintained it, though not with any permanency, until 1585. In many cases, the appointment merely confirmed a local supremacy, either long established or newly won, the Earl of Shrewsbury in Derbyshire, the Earl of Pembroke in Wiltshire, but in others, it sought to arrogate power to men trusted at the centre. John Dudley put William Parr, Marquis of Northampton, in charge of six counties, while Elizabeth gave Oxfordshire to her vice-chamberlain, Sir Francis Knowles. Certainly, the post was worth having. In 1556, the Earl of Derby wrote to Sir Edward Hastings, asking him to move the Queen to renew his commission as Lieutenant of Lancashire and Cheshire, and not to include the counties in the Earl of Shrewsbury's remit. He felt strongly about the matter. I think my service no less acceptable than myself able and of power equal with him to serve Her Majesty in the office of Lieutenant of the same counties, he wrote, where my servants, tenants, offices and friends for the most part do remain, and not to serve as an object under him, remembering both our services heretofore, his wish was to serve the Queen with honour and not as a mean subject, whereby the country might speak evil and think that Her Grace had withdrawn some part of her goodwill from me. Personal honour and private lordship were as much bound up with the Lord Lieutenancy as they had been with the command of Henry's armies. The power of the lieutenants worked through and alongside that of other landowners. Though the appointment of deputy lieutenants was not systematised until the 1560s, the commissions of 1550-1 permitted it, and the system's begetter, John Dudley, duly named three deputies in Warwickshire. In June 1559, the Marquis of Northampton's deputies for Northamptonshire, George Lord Zouche, Sir John Spencer, and Sir Robert Lane, met at Kettering to divide up the county between them, taking half a dozen hundreds each, and to plan what to do about musters, law enforcement, invasion, or rebellion. Thus, the lieutenancy shared in a broader reconfiguration of the landed elite's participation in war. The intensive taxation, mustering, and defensive measures of the mid-century drew them repeatedly into action as commissioners, and that action shaped their relationships with their neighbours and their sense of responsibility for local and national government. Already in the 1520s, the accounts of magistrates like Sir Henry Willoughby show them touring their county sitting as muster commissioners and the muster returns of the 1530s, 40s and 60s show knights, esquires and peers hard at work. Lords Mordaunt and Bray in Bedfordshire and Lord Stafford in Staffordshire in 1539, Viscount Bindon in Dorset in 1569. In wartime, they had to find drafts of men. Spencer, for example, 300 from Northamptonshire in August 1557. It was hard because some landowners had been asked for individual contingents Others were away on the Saint-Quentin campaign, 
Few men could handle a pike or an arquebus. Even the archers were not such as we would wish. And in the midst of an epidemic, there were very many weak, sick, and dead. It was even busier on the coast. In spring 1557, Sir Henry Bedingfield and two neighbours were commissioned to fortify Nor Norfolk against the French and erect warning beacons there. In August that year, the Earls of Bath and Oxford and Lords Rich and Darcy were doing the same for Suffolk and Essex. As activities multiplied, so did their fiscal implications, and commissioners began to levy rates to pay for beacons or for soldiers' coats and conduct money. Communities responded by making friends with the commissioners. Melton Mowbray giving the Marquis of Northampton a gallon of wine at the musters. Louth sending its church wardens armed with sack and sugar to speak with Mr. Tyrrett and Mr. Captain Coppledyke for order of the town's harness. Those implementing policy at county level were under constant pressure from above to carry out requests well and monitor local responses. Spencer, raising men for the relief of Calais, was told to report who you shall find toadly and who do show themselves otherwise in this service. The Earl of Bath, charged with others by the Duke of Norfolk to raise 100 Suffolk men for the fleet in 1558, was reminded to make sure that these men now to be set forth may be chosen and picked as my trust is in your lordship. They were equally under pressure from besides and below for moderation or favour. Sir Henry Bedingfield, raising troops in Norfolk, got a letter from Sir Richard Southall asking that one of his servants be excused from overseas service. Lord North was diverted from pressing Cambridge University for men in 1569 by a timely letter from Sir William Cecil. Such demands were doubtless irritating, but they were also the currency of influence. They called for particular finesse in the transitional period from the 1540s to the 1560s, as lieutenants and commissioners had to balance instructions to raise troops from whole counties against requests from lords to exempt their men from the common musters. William Worcester then was right. The gentry and even the peerage were spending more of their time holding courts, but this was part of a wider integration into the service of the Commonwealth. The metamorphosis was evident in the praise poetry directed to the Welsh gentry, who were increasingly described not just as well-bred warriors and generous patrons, but as prudent magistrates, esteemed statesmen, governors of the country. Various aspects of the relationship between the Tudor monarchs and the landed elite, particularly the peerage, were awkward. Tightening royal control of local justice and violent disorder, a narrowing of royal councils and the rise of new men. But periodic opportunities for military command for those so inclined, and a wider set of functions in what some were coming to call by the 1570s the defense of the state, helped ease these tensions in a mutually satisfactory way. Already by 1557-8, the peers were not turning out en masse to campaign in France, but the range of their activity shows how they could play their part in a new breadth of military activity in the Navy, in Ireland, in musters at home, and continue to serve King, Queen, and Commonwealth. Some of the men we've met this week made their fortunes in war, and a few lost them. But war is inherently destructive, and its overall effects on the economy of Henry's England were surely negative. How negative, and how universally negative, we shall have to ask next week.